0: Tonight's talk is called Lessons from Nature. I was inspired to give this talk because of the coming of spring, celebration of spring. And probably if you're from the West Coast, you think I'm a little premature. (laughs) But it is happening. (laughs) Um, I'd like to begin with a a poem from a Buddhist nun named Rangetsu. Uh, It's called Tender Buds. A thousand grasses run rampant in autumn, but to discover a single sprout with two leaves, the joy of spring." Just in this time in nature, spring, we might begin to get some lessons from nature. I know I certainly have, as there's one day where it's warm and sunny, and. Feeling off the layers and, you know, kind of this excitement running through the body. And the next day it's cold, windy, snowing, and feeling the craving that had come in. We're very fortunate here in that we get to live for a period of time in such beautiful surroundings, where when we walk out the door, Nature is there. For the untrained mind, this might be the world of distraction. Thinking about, analyzing, you know, just seeing a bird and contemplating that bird and where it lives and, you know, whether it's had um, laid eggs yet, or just getting caught up in the stories of nature and trying to figure it out and piece it all together in our minds. Or maybe we step out the door and feel, you know, those warm spring rays of the sun, and we just get lost in the pleasant, reveling in the pleasant. All of this will be a distraction to us. And yet there is ways that nature can touch us deeply, can show us many lessons of life. So I'd like to speak a bit tonight about how it can be a support to our practice, can be a place that we actually go out into and feel held, feel a part of. And how, also, there are many lessons from nature, many things that we can learn when our eyes are open, when we're receptive and available to its lessons. In my own life, nature has been a strong teacher. I often say nature was my first teacher. I remember, as a child, nature being a refuge. How many times when I was distressed, uneasy about life around me, and I would just walk out into the fields, the hills uh, around where I lived, and just sit and be quiet, be still, and feel at peace in the world. <clears throat> then, in my teenage years, the mountains became very important, a great teacher, teaching me about resolve, teaching me about strength, you know, putting myself in the midst of the mountains and finding the capacity to stay alive the mountains also teaching me about equanimity, about the ability to receive all kinds of experiences. And then, in my 20s, nature began to teach me about humility, that one can't push nature, that one is sometimes very humbled by nature. Nature can really teach us about the Dhamma. It can teach us about the lawfulness of life. In the Thai language, the word for nature often gets translated as entering into Dhamma. When we enter into nature, we're entering into Dhamma. We're entering into the lawfulness of life. only to enter into it to realize that we've never been separate from it. We've never been apart from it. The uniqueness of our experiences are that we, as human beings, have the capacity to know and understand the nature of things. If it was possible to examine these laws externally and to uh, really understand nature through the external, then many scientists would be enlightened. But there has to be a bridge. There has to be um, an internal examination in the same way that there's an external examination. We need to learn to regulate our senses in this examination so that we're not um, lost in the experience, Uh, that we are using it as a way to examine the nature of things. And we need to make a bridge between appearances in our own hearts and minds appearances in the world, and the understanding, the understanding in our own hearts. What we can do through looking at nature in the external world is to then look inwards and see how these same laws apply to this mind-body experience which is a part of nature. This understanding moves from being something conceptual to being an experiential understanding of the interconnectedness of life, of being able to see things just as they are It helps us to move from feeling separate and alienated to having a sense of being a part of all things. When I originally prepared this talk, um, it was a talk that, because nature had been such a big teacher to me, was one that I had really wanted to put together and was mulling about in my mind. And I was struggling with it somewhat. And then I came across a quote by Ajahn Buddhadasa, famous Thai forest uh, master, who often put his teachings into the context of nature. And I actually had a friend that spent some time practicing with him. And his initial instruction to him was, Let the forest teach you. Let the forest teach you. And really letting nature speak to us. On one occasion, he was asked how Westerners who began spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred could best approach practice. And he replied with two suggestions. He said, first, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of loving-kindness. And then, they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. And they must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of all things. When I heard this quote, it really resonated with me. Know that the practice not being about becoming a really good meditator, or having really good, pleasant, exhilarating experiences, or about becoming so inward that we recoil from outer stimulation. But our practice is about taking our proper place, in life, taking our proper place and honoring what this life has to offer. And without trying to own it, without trying to hold it to be a certain way, but living in recognition of the way things are. And for me, much of this has been possible through the allowing of nature to teach me its lessons. The same lessons that are contained within Buddhist teachings. In speaking about nature tonight, I'm not wanting to trigger some romantic view of nature, some uh, poetic vision, not trying to take us into sentimentality. Because this isn't the truth of nature. We only view nature as being beautiful when we're sitting inside a warm building with uh, double-paned windows and thickly insulated roof, um, looking out at it, when we're standing in separation from it. But when we step into nature, it's quite a different experience. You know, when we, those days when we have in the winter ventured outside and stepped out into a chilling, bitter wind, exposing ourselves to the elements. You know, already I hear there's been uh, a tick spotted. You know, and I know that from my own experience, that they can be here many months of the year when you'd least expect. If we allow ourselves to simply stand separate from nature we may find ourselves in a position to which Wendell Berry describes in a poem. It's called The Vacation. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of all the moving river upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly toward the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it, preserving it forever. The river, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation, even as he was having it, so that after he had it, it would st- he would still have it. It would be there, with a the flick of a switch, There it would be, but he would not be in it. He would never be in it." Taking care that we don't live in this way, living behind the view of a camera, trying to take pictures simply to hold on to, which will keep us in separation. When we step out into nature, We have to become a part of it, to experience it deeply. Nature can be a very harsh taskmaster at times. And yet, many of us seem to have a natural resonance with it. And it's not everybody that, that feels that. You know, I, if people have spent a long time in cities without much exposure to the natural world, it can feel very threatening um, and off-putting to walk out into the woods. One can be quite afraid. And yet, when we can learn to be in nature, we can f- learn to feel supported by the very earth we walk on supported by life around us. When we look at the life of the Buddha, nature was such a strong support to him. The Buddha was actually born under a sal tree. Later, upon leaving home, he lived in the forest. He lived with the forest as his home. He became enlightened under a sal tree. And then he continued to live in the forest. He once said, I resort to the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to the forest. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now And I have compassion for future generations. There are these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. Do not be negligent, lest you later regret it. It's said in the commentaries what, what the Buddha meant when he said, I have compassion for future generations, was that later generations, in seeing that the Buddha resorted to the forest, or to the roots of trees, they would follow his example, and that this would hasten their progress towards making an end of suffering. Last spring I was sitting here, and it was this time of year, it was actually March and April, and I think the weather was a little bit similar, um, going back and forth. But I was finding myself very drawn to practice outside, practice out in the woods. Um, And, you know, I was also practicing with a group of teachers. And then at one point, you know, after I'd spent many days out in the woods, and I was coming back in, it, it suddenly had the thought in my mind, oh, I bet they think I'm all of they all think I'm a flake. You know, I just go out and I hang out in the woods all day. You know, they're probably really judging my practice. And somehow I identified with that thought in the moment. And it was great dukkha. But I was very fortunate in that very soon after that, landscaping began around the building. And when the landscaping began, it was like an army moved in. And there was bulldozers and, you know, heavy-duty equipment just outside the meditation hall. And then there came a sign that appeared on the bulletin board um, that said, There are the trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. You know? And it, it just it reminded me in that moment that actually we come from a lineage that practice in the forest, in the woods. In your time here, you might want to explore that. You know, there can be times in practice when, you know, we may practice the full day in our room. We sit, we walk, we sit, we walk, or we practice in the hall and we just go out to the little walking space. And that's what's right. That's what's supportive. And there may be other times when practicing in nature, practicing being touched by the world of nature, it's what's going to give us support is what's gonna help us to stay balanced, is what's gonna open our eyes to the laws of life. The, you know, we're not in a situation where we're um, completely secluded and for you know, mealtimes that's quite a blessing. <laughs> but you might find that there could be actually large chunks of the day when you might go and find a corner in the woods where you don't even see other people, and you simply sit and walk and sit and walk. I'd like to share a Poem by a Tibetan yogi and uh, master, Shabkar, who lived in the 1800s, and it's said that he spent many years in solitary retreat before he began teaching. In wild places where no one lives are pleasant caves in which to dwell and practice. In wild places where no one lives, one's consoling friends will be wild animals and birds. In wild places where no one lives, one's nourishment will be wild roots and berries. In wild places where no one lives is the market where samsara is traded for nibbana. In wild places where no one lives are the conditions favorable for realization. In wild places where no one lives is natural beauty delightful to behold." There is no possible way to express the many virtues of staying in remote and lonely places, far removed from human habitation. Therefore, heir of the victorious ones, go to a secluded place and practice. Seclusion has long been helpful to meditators, to people walking the path of awakening. You know, there's the traditions of, of uh, forest monks. Um, there's traditions of cave dwellers. People who go to caves to find that solitude, the stillness. There's a contemporary, um, Tenzin Palmo who is a, an English woman who spent a lot of time uh, in Tibet. And she actually spent 12 years in a, in a cave about 13,200 feet above sea level. Um, during that time in the cave, she faced numerous challenges, uh, numerous experiences. One time, she found that she was completely snowed in, in her cave. And the stovepipe that she had from her little cooking stove that she used for food and heat had snapped. She wasn't able to cook for herself anymore, and there was no heat. And she was you know, a really well-practiced Buddhist practitioner, and in doing so, she sat there to contemplate her own death. She said that there was no fear. But as she was sitting there, suddenly she heard the words, dig. So dig, she did. She, in fact, dug herself out to skylight twice. And once she got out, she discovered that there had been a massive avalanche about two kilometers wide that had actually killed a couple hundred people. during that time, she just had to be with her own mind in this experience. And this is something the solitude offers. It offers us simplicity. It offers us the possibility to really put down all of the stories of our lives. You know, we don't have to uphold any identity you know, for sitting out in the woods here. The squirrels, the chipmunks, they don't care about your story. You can really let it all go. I remember um, a few years ago now, I was practicing up in Karma Choling in Vermont, and I was five weeks, or almost five weeks, in a cabin where I never laid eyes on another human being. And, you know, around me, was a lot of wildlife. What amazed me about that time was the holiday that I got from the judging mind. You know, it was just so easeful to be alone with myself and not caught up in comparing, judging, thinking about myself in relation to others. It really gives us an opportunity Sigurd Olson, a 20th century conservationalist, says, Simplicity in all things is the secret of the wilderness and one of its most valuable lessons. It is what we leave behind that is important. I think the matter of simplicity goes further than just food, equipment, and unnecessary gadgets. It goes into the matter of thoughts and objectives as well. When in the wilds we must not carry our problems with us, where the joy is lost. The next time that you're out walking in the woods, notice the thinking mind. Notice what happens. You know, we can be walking through the woods and feeling really a part of nature, aware of sights, smells, sounds, um, the sense doors being vitally alive. And then a thought comes along. We start thinking about something. The world around us disappears. We become totally disconnected from that world. And then, as the thought disappears, we simply reconnect. We come back. Walking and watching thoughts is actually a practice that I found very helpful out in nature because it becomes so evident when the experience is obscured by thought, when that separation begins to happen. Solitude also helps to provoke presence. We can experience this uh, if you go out walking on the trails in the back and you come to a grove of old trees, just stand for a minute. Stand in the presence of elders and simply see what happens. It provokes presence. I was amazed at my own, you know, my own experiences of walking out in the woods behind here and you know, many times just walking along and then suddenly I would stop, be still and sure enough, it would happen to be in these old groves, in these moments we're opening, becoming receptive there's no grasping in these moments there can be a sense of timelessness you've ever been out in the desert at night, you know, where maybe there's a, a whole huge star-filled sky above, and the silence of the de- desert, it's almost like a deafening roar. But the only way you can enter into it is to be quiet, to be still, to stand in presence, We understand this presence through the equanimity of mountains, where mountains can receive blizzards, rain, thunder, lightning, sun, clouds, frost, sleet, wind. And the mountain is unwavering, accepting, receiving. To feel The pulsations of the earth. We have to step out of the way to be still, quiet. We have to put down our armor. I've often found it interesting because for me there is this natural resonance with nature to, you know, as if practice becomes effortless. And then to watch what happens as I walk back into the building or as I sit on the cushion, as maybe I suddenly put on the armor of meditation, the armor of doing, becoming. We can find in nature that there is this natural stilling of the mind. We find this happening in moments where we're awestruck, You know, it could be a moment where we're uh, standing under a huge waterfall with water coming down from a couple hundred feet above. And there can be a roar that's happening. And maybe that we're being enveloped in the mist arising from the water. Or it can happen in the moment of standing on the top of a mountain. And maybe looking in one direction, and seeing the beauty of the setting sun, the colors, purple, pink, red. And then turning around and seeing the full moon rising. Or maybe moments of being out on a a glassy ocean, and there comes a very timid loon poking its head through, while overhead flies a bald eagle. In these moments, we might find that the mind is awed, hushed into silence. The usual buzz is gone. And in these moments, for a moment, we don't stand separate. We are a part of all things. If we look at these moments, In these moments, there is no craving, there's no wanting for anything to be different than what it is. We're not leaning into the future, and we're not hanging on to anything in the past. We're not judging or evaluating. There's an openness, a receptivity, an allowing. This can inform us how to be, how to be in our practice, how to relax, let go, receive, in just the same way that a mountain receives. The Buddha talked about the cause of, crave, uh, the cause of suffering being craving. And these are moments when we can experience the mind of no craving. These are the moments when we can feel life simply moving through, being known, appearances coming and going. No disconnection, no standing separate, and no grasping, no wanting, just this, just the way things are right now, with no modification needed. Han Shan Te Ching, a 15th century Chinese monk says, Resting at my open window, I gaze out at mountains. A, a thousand peaks of blue and purple rise above the pines. Without a thought or care, White clouds come and go, so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed. Learning to be with our experiences in this same way, so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed. The storms of our thoughts, emotions, simply sitting with the equanimity of a mountain. Being out in nature, we will often experience, very similar to what intensive practice does, that the sense doors become very heightened. And it's not just because things are so beautiful, but when we're out in nature, there can be an element of survival. I'd like to share um, something from John Muir. In climbing where the danger is great, all attention has to be given the ground step by step, leaving nothing for beauty by the way. But this care, so keenly and narrowly concentrated, is not without advantages. One is thoroughly aroused compared with the alertness of the senses and corresponding precision and power of the muscles on such occasions. One may be said to sleep all the rest of the year. The mind and body remain awake for some time after the dangerous ground is passed, so that arriving on the summit with the grand outlook, all the world spread below, one is able to see it better and brings to the feast a far keener vision and reaps richer harvests than would have been possible ere the presence of danger summoned him to life." So I was reading that earlier tonight and reflecting on how, you know, in my own past in climbing mountains, there was, you know, a real alertness that took place in the climbing of the mountains. Um, You know, uh, in my own experience, I was very much afraid of heights, and yet found that by being totally present, I could uh, climb a mountain, I could go up faces of cliffs. Um, I had one experience where, actually, I wasn't as mindful and I looked down and became paralyzed with fear. And uh, it was really a difficult situation because the only thing to do was to keep going. And having to summon up all the courage I could to get myself to move again, it really showed me that I had to stay present as I climbed, because otherwise it was too excruciating." <clears throat> but in reading that quote from John Muir, I also re- you know, remembered the many times of sitting on top of a mountain and not being able to stay present because of the fear of having to go back down. <laughs> <clears throat> I mentioned last week that Ajahn Mun, a Thai forest monk, uh, used uh, for his disciples the fear of tigers, in a way. And he, he really uh, pushed people to be out in nature, uh, where they had to be awake, alert, as a means to train the mind. Uh, in his own life, he had once sought out a teacher. And he, tra- during that time, over two decades, he traveled around Laos, Central Thailand, and Burma. And he never found a teacher. And so then he decided to follow the example of the Buddha, and to let the wilderness be his teacher. And, you know, he lived in an environment that, uh, the, where the wilderness is slightly more dynamic than what we experience here, where, you know, it may be our greatest enemy is a lime tick. And that's not to undermine the danger of lime ticks, but that in his wilderness, there was kind of more vivid creatures that were around, such as uh, wild elephants, tigers, clouded leopards, black panthers, wild buffaloes, boars, and snakes, just to name some. But he took up this challenge to live in the wilderness. And he went to the forest not to conform to the ways of nature, because nature in itself is samsara, but he went there to break through to the truths that would transcend entirely. He recognized that being out in nature, that there's one set of wilderness skills to survive but you also need to develop skills that will combat your own demons, and this is very evident in nature. That whatever our demons are, will arise, and you know, as I mentioned last week, be one of them being fear, and this is what Ajahn Man said about fear: if fear is defeated. If fear is defeated, the mind will be overwhelmed by courage and enjoy profound inner peace. If fear is the victor, it will multiply itself rapidly and prodigiously. The whole body will be enveloped by both a perspiring heat and a chilling cold, by the desire to pass urine and to defecate. The monk will be suffocated by fear and will look more like a dying man than a living man." To the untrained mind, the roar of the tiger will be overwhelming. To the person who has the desire to be free of suffering, they will use it as an opportunity to turn to the Dhamma, or a greater truth. Ajahn Man says there comes a critical moment when strong concentration develops in order to face our fears, and then further insight will arise. He believed that it was good fortune for a monk to hear the growl of a tiger. For the ordinary mind, the response would be fear. For the noble one, it is simply sound." Being out in nature, we learn to train the mind in the face of our own demons. Actually, the training of the mind I was reminded of tonight. At five o'clock, I was working on the computer, preparing for the talk. And I reached that delightful moment of pressing the print button. But things went horribly wrong. And it was actually a situation where it was not going to be fixable in that present moment. And just to watch the training of the mind in those moments. You know, where the temptation, the desire, the pull was so strong to go into anger, to go into the story, to go into sitting up front here tonight empty-handed. You know, there there were strong, uh, strong tendencies there. And then to see that I know from past experience it's just not worth it. That that mind is dukkha. That mind is suffering that mind leads to torment. And better would it be to end up sitting here completely empty-handed than to indulge in those mind states. And we learn this through training of the mind in these times when we're deeply challenged, when rage is burning, you know, wanting to be embellished. And we learn where to turn the mind. And nature will confront us. We will find many times that we are up against our own demons. In nature, for some of us, it will be the overcoming of fear, For others of us, it may be the overcoming of arrogance. Mount Everest is famous for teaching people about arrogance. Some not having learned um, the easy way, learning a hard way. In my own experience, to know what it was like to set out on a really clear, sunny morning to climb a mountain... A lot of excitement, conditions are perfect, you know, and just the joy of doing this. To find oneself two-thirds of the way up a mountain and to have a big storm move in where fog's coming. And maybe it isn't even there yet, but you can see it on the horizon. And you know that you have to yield. You know that to push onwards is foolhardy. And sometimes, it's a lesson that's hard to learn. The lesson of yielding, it's something that we can really carry into our practice. It teaches us to learn to work with conditions as they are, whatever conditions may be. You know, sometimes we may have had a great day of practice, and we go to bed at night, and we imagine that we'll get up and we'll pick up where we left off. And then, as we wake up in the morning, we notice a burning in the throat, a tickling. We notice the sneezing begin to happen. We get up, and there's a fogginess, a dullness. And, you know, if we're the foolhardy, we try and push, and we try and practice in just the same way that we did when conditions were different when conditions felt more optimal. But that's not going to help us. What's going to help us is to be able to relax, to accept, to work with these conditions. It doesn't mean that we abandon practice, that we um, let it go completely. It means that we might have to adjust our form. But we find the ways that help us to stay present to help us to continue to practice. Maybe altering the form to work with a body that can barely sit upright. Nature is very good at teaching us about the first noble truth, the truth of suffering in a very impersonal way. Now, you know, at times when we might take illness personally, we might take aging personally, we might take death personally, it can be really helpful to walk out into nature and to see this first noble truth You know, to look at a tree and notice that there's not many perfect trees around. That many trees are missing limbs. You know, an old tree is very likely to have many blemishes or to have, you know, a gnarly old trunk. You don't see many old perfect trees. Walking through the forest We might find, come across dead animals, or the smell of rot, the smell of decay. In nature, there's a lot of evidence of death, and that animals have to kill to live. It's the way of survival, and this is just present in the cycle of life and death. It's not personal. It's not a personal misfortune. It's simply the way things are. And nature doesn't mask this. It doesn't hide it. Sitting out in nature, we're exposed to this. One time in my own practice, I was in Burma, sitting in the back of the monastery on these little platforms. I loved to go out there, because one could practice for a lot of the day and not see anyone else. But there was the world of nature, and in Burma, the world of nature means snakes. I was amazed a number of times when I would be sitting with my eyes closed, and then they would just pop open, and there would be a snake or some other creature right in front of me. One day, I opened my eyes, And there was this snake. And I saw the snake and it was doing a dance, you know, it was swaying back and forth, back and forth, very beautiful. And yet there was this whoosh of fear that came up as I saw this, until I realized that it wasn't me that the snake was looking at. But the snake was looking at a frog. And you know, I just watched this, you know, this dance, this rhythm, the beauty, and then In a split second, the snake made its move, and boom, bam, the frog was gone. You know, and it was the dance of life and death, the life and death that surrounds us everywhere. How can we feel that we're different? How can we feel that this law doesn't apply to us when it's totally evident in the world all around us? Being out in nature also teaches us of impermanence. The obvious cycles of change that are evident in nature. The weather changing. You know, when we watch the weather change, we know we can't blame anyone for the changing of the weather. Can we blame anyone for the changes of this mind and body? If you're sitting here long enough, you'll see all the cycles of the seasons. You know we're entering into spring, and there is, right now, the new budding of life. As we move into summer, things will move into full bloom, blossoms, uh, full flowering of life, the ripeness. Uh, and then into the fall, when the colors, the leaves, things start to shift again, and then moving into winter, into the desolate, the still, the unborn. These too are cycles of life and death. I remember when I arrived back in America after having lived in Australia for a couple of years. I arrived in the fall. and. Australia doesn't have dramatic seasons like we do here. And when I came back, it was just this reminder of how these seasons are so valuable in reminding us of impermanence, of reminding us of these cycles of life. In the Vasudhi Magga, one of the commentaries, Um, There's a detailed uh, description of ascetic practices, and I'd like to share just a small part of a passage that was for tree root dwellers. And when the tender leaves are seen, bright red at first, then turning green, and then to yellow as they fall, he sheds belief once and for all in permanence. In the scene of impermanence, we shed our belief of permanence. Basho had another take of on impermanence through nature. The clouds come and go, providing a rest for all the moon viewers. However we look at nature, we will see impermanence. And this helps us to eradicate, eradicate clinging. It helps us to uproot this trying to hold on to permanence and to rest in impermanence, to rest in the way that things are. Nature also teaches us of the interconnectedness of life. Now how there are so many microsystems that support the cohesion of communities. Now these great dependence of uh, the web of life, and the, in multiple layers of it. Thich Nhat Hanh expresses something of this interconnectedness very beautifully in his book, Being Peace. Just as a piece of paper is the fruit, the combination of many elements that can uh, can be called non-paper elements, the individual is made up of non-individual elements. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no water. Without water, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, you cannot make paper. You cannot point to one thing that does not have a relationship with this piece of paper. It has been made by all the non-self elements, non-paper elements, And if all these non-paper elements are taken out, it is truly empty, empty of an independent self. Empty in this sense means that the paper is full of everything, the entire cosmos. The presence of this tiny sheet of paper proves the presence of the whole cosmos. In the same way, the individual is made of non-individual elements." We look externally, and we see this web of life. You no, know, and there were times, even just touching of a spider's web, and noticing how the movement of one part of that web affects the whole web. And as we look internally, we feel, we experience this deep interconnectedness, where everything arises dependent upon conditions, interconnectedness. In our practice, we see this on the deepest level. Nature can also help us to touch into the nature of mind, the vastness, the boundlessness, I have such a clear memory of being a small child and spending many nights laying out under the stars and looking up at this vast sky and in those moments feeling so small but not having fear in that smallness but rather just having a sense of perspective a sense of being a small particle of dust with an entire cosmos. This is from Stephen Mitchell's book, Parables and Portraits. It's called The Sense of Proportion. There are at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Each galaxy contains at least 100 billion stars. Each star illuminates an uncounted number of planets, each of which may support inconceivable forms of life. And from most points of view, the green earth is smaller than an electron. All this is happening within your own mind. When we touch into the nature of mind... All appearances arising within this vastness, this boundlessness of the mind. Universe is being born and dying in each moment. So nature has so many lessons to offer us. And really, only a few of these I've touched on tonight. The next time that you step out into the natural world, seeing what it has to teach you, to tell you, whether it be about the nature of your own mind, whether it at times be more reflective on the truth of impermanence. You know, I remember myself being startled In moments of just simply seeing a leaf falling, opening to these lessons, opening to being touched by nature, opening to nature so that we too can feel a part of all things and take our proper place in the midst of life. William Blake once said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would be seen as it is, infinite. Let's just sit for a moment. They all beings recognize the nature of their own minds.
1: Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration Through the goodness that arises from my practice May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue My mother, my father, and my relatives the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial blessings of my life, may they soon attain the threefold bliss, and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease all harmful states of mind until Until I